2,000 years ago, Israel's King David observed, the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth his handiwork. The Apostle Paul with King David's words probably in the back of his mind, wrote to the church at Rome and he said, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. These passages and others like them are the basis for a theological concept called general revelation. Through creation and conscience and our awareness of these things through human consciousness, we are able to recognize that God is, that he exists, and that this God who is, that he is powerful and that he is intelligent. Furthermore, when thinking deeply about ourselves and this universe, we can infer truths about things like truth, goodness, beauty, morality, and love, and other things as well. According to Paul in Romans, these observable truths are sufficient for making us aware of God's existence. And not only making us aware of God's existence, but making us accountable, or as Paul says to the Romans, inexcusable as far as unbelief is concerned. In Romans 1, beginning at verse 20, we read, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even God's eternal power and Godhead, so that they, humanity, are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Ultimately, according to the scriptures, there is no excuse for unbelief. Though the skeptical and agnostic atheists will, of course, disagree, Bertrand Russell, one of the most outspoken and influential atheists of the 20th century, was once asked during a question and answer following a public lecture that he gave, he was asked for a defense of his atheism. And the questioner asked him, suppose that you are wrong and one day you stand before God and he is on his throne of judgment. What will you say to God? And Bertrand Russell, he replied, I will say, I'm terribly sorry, but you, God, did not give us enough evidence. What fascinates me is that the very same people that often espouse rationality and what I would call scientism, they will spend billions of dollars on radio telescope arrays to search for signs of alien life in the universe. And they're trying to find even the most rudimentary patterns of coded radio waves. And if they were able to find just a very simple sort of pattern coming back in these radio waves from the edges of the universe, then they would see that as evidence that there is intelligent life there on the other side of the universe. But these very same people that, that believe those things and put a lot of money towards trying to find extraterrestrials, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, SETI, these very same people, when presented with the evidence for design in the universe, they will oftentimes look at the fine-tuning of the universe, the complexity of DNA, and the remarkable structure of physics, and they will conclude from those things that that happened by random chance and mutation over billions of years, 
13.8 billion years. Now, again, that's amazing to me. These same people that are looking for just the most simple kind of pattern coming back in the form of a radio wave, they'll say that is an indication of intelligent life. But they look at the complexity of DNA and they say random chance and mutation over billions of years. But Paul says because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth God's handiwork. And these things, creation, consciousness, conscience, they are intended by the creator, by God, to compel us to seek for God. As Paul, as he is speaking before the intelligentsia of Athens in Acts chapter 17, 2000 years ago, he, he brings this to the surface. God who made the world and made us in this way. Acts chapter 17 says in verse 27 that God did this so that they might seek God and perhaps that they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each of us. And here is the beautiful thing, so important. Those that sincerely seek will ultimately find. I'm absolutely convinced of this. Those that sincerely begin to look for the God that is behind all of these things, the complexity of DNA, the fine-tuning of the universe, the structure found in physics, those who sincerely seek, they will ultimately find that. The one that comes to God, the author of the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, he must believe that God is and that he is the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Of course, as I mentioned in my message last time, there is a problem. General revelation through creation, the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth its handiwork. Through creation and then consciousness, our awareness of all these things, our knowledge of all these things and our desire to know more, consciousness and conscience, our understanding of right and wrong, goodness, beauty, truth, and so forth. These things, they are not sufficient. It, it isn't enough through general revelation to understand who God is fully. I believe that we can know that God is. He is the God who is there. And we can deduce from general revelation that God is there, that he is powerful, and that he is intelligent. And I believe that we can know by not just observation of creation and conscience and consciousness, we can know that God is and that he is powerful, that he is intelligent, but we can also infer certain things about God as we begin to think about all these things that are around us and to think deeply about ourselves. By inference, we can know, I believe, that God loves beauty and that he values truth and justice and a number of other things as well. But in the same way that my, my cell phone or even something as simple as this pen can tell me certain things about whoever it is that made this. You know, obviously, even though this is a very simple tool, this beautiful pen here could not have happened on its own. So if I come across this, I find this out in the wilderness somewhere, I'm not going to say that it just happened by random chance and mutation over billions of years that it was able to pull itself together. Just by looking at this pen, I can come to the conclusion, or this cell phone, which is much more you know, technologically amazing than this simple pen, but looking at something as simple as this, I can come to the conclusion that there is a maker. Somebody made this. And 
I can deduce that this maker, not only does this maker exist, but that this maker has resources, power, and has intelligence to be able to pull all those resources together and to turn them into this wonderful little instrument right here. But when I look at this, though I can conclude that there is a maker, that he is powerful or she, or they are intelligent, there are things that I can't know by simply looking at these things. By looking at what is made, there are a number of things that general revelation is not able to inform me about. So this is where general revelation falls short. I would put it like this. By looking at the things that are made, I can know that there is a maker, a maker who has power, resources, who has intelligence. And I can infer other things about the maker by close examination of this piece of equipment, this thing that is made. Maybe I can infer that this person, you know, liked to draw. Maybe I can infer that this person's name was Schaefer because that's what it says here on this bell cap here. So, so there's different things I might be able to infer by looking at it, but the maker of this thing is ultimately independent of the thing that he or she has made. So by observing the creation of the one that created this, I have very little knowledge of two very important things as I look at this. General revelation, observation of the things around us or the things that are made. General revelation, it leaves us wanting for knowledge of what God is like and what God likes. Through general revelation alone, I cannot know God's nature and his will. I can know that he exists, that he is powerful, that he is intelligent. I can infer various things about him, but I cannot know his nature, what he is like, and his will, what he likes. I can infer certain things, but I cannot know. But the unknown God wants to be known. So there's a problem. General revelation has its limits, which means that we need a greater form of revelation. We need the God who is there to reveal himself. We need literally an apocalypse of God. Now, I'm sure that I probably got somebody's attention when I use that word apocalypse, but I'm quite certain that this, this word does not mean what you think it means. The Greek word apocalypsis, which is the word from which we get the, the English word apocalypse, it means revelation or disclosure. So we need a revelation or a disclosure of God. We can learn certain things about him by looking at creation, by considering our conscience and having the fact that we have consciousness. We can determine that God is, that he is powerful, that he is intelligent, and various things about him. But we need more than that if we are to know this unknown God. We need God to make himself known, to reveal what he is like, his nature, and what he likes, his will. And how do you make known what you are like and what you like? If you want somebody to know you or you want to know them, how can you possibly make yourself known? your nature and your will. Well, you have to speak. I can't know you and you can't know me if we don't communicate. So the question is, has God revealed himself in this way? Has God communicated to us in language in a way that we can comprehend and understand? Has he revealed himself in this way? Does God speak to us? Can he speak to us? Is that even possible? Now, of course, as a Christian, I say, yes, God has spoken. At various times and in various ways, God spoke in times past by the Father's 
or to the fathers by the prophets. That's what the opening of the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. So for the Christian, they say, yes, God has spoken. And theologians refer to this as special revelation. So the heavens declare the glory of God, the earth shows forth God's handiwork. We see God in creation and consciousness and conscience. So that's general revelation. But special revelation is where God reveals himself to us. He communicates to us from outside the box of this creation because God is independent of this thing that he has made. Now, the Christian recognizes that this is, this is fine, special revelation, but the skeptic says impossible, absurd. There's no possible way. If there is a God, the skeptic will say, and the big emphasis on the if, they will say, if there is a God, then God can not speak to us. There's no way. And if there is a God and, and we assume that he has to speak to us to reveal himself to us, then it's just, there's no way that that could happen. That, that seems like we are way too small and he is way too big and we are finite and we are stupid and so he can't possibly speak to us. So for the skeptic, special revelation is absurd and it is impossible. But is it? Is it impossible for a master engineer to make something and to make the something have knowledge and the capacity for even some form of intelligence and then for the engineer to reveal himself and his will, if you will, in such a way that this thing that the engineer has made can understand it and can comprehend and can respond to it. Is it possible for a master engineer to be able to do that? And I believe that it is. And here's the amazing thing, the rational skeptics who often are those who say they would believe in science and not in faith and not in, as they would say, religion, even though I would suggest that even their, their scientism has become religious in many ways. The rational skeptics say that special revelation is not possible. But I want to suggest to you that these rational skeptics actually believe otherwise. And to prove it, I have to tell you a story. In the early 1970s, I wasn't alive yet. Some of you watching this, maybe you were. But in the early 1970s, there was a company in Albuquerque, New Mexico called MITS. And MITS stood for Micro Instrumentation and Telemetry Systems. And this company had built a device. They had built this box, would probably have fit on this table, not very big. And they built this device around a new piece of hardware that had recently been released by, at that time, a new startup out of Santa Clara, California called Intel. And the new device that Intel had released that this MITS company in New Mexico had built this container for, this new device was the Intel 8080 processor. And MITS called their machine the Altair 8800. Now, MITS said that their new device was a microcomputer. Now, at that point in time, no one had really heard much about microcomputers in pop culture. There were kind of geeky nerds that would go to places like Radio Shack and they'd try to piece things together. And there were massive computers, big, huge mainframes that took up entire rooms bigger than this room here. But the idea of a microcomputer, a computer that would sit on your table and you would be able to use was, was something out of science fiction at that moment. And so Mitz said, this new device is a microcomputer. And in January of 1975, a publishing company called Ziff Davis, now they're called ZDNet, they released an article about this Altair 8800 in their magazine, Popular Electronics. 
And 2,300 miles away from Albuquerque, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a guy named Paul Allen, he bought a copy of this magazine. And as soon as he bought this copy of this magazine, he ran over to his friend's dorm room, who was an, a Harvard undergrad by the name of Bill Gates, and they, they went through this magazine. They were gripped by this whole thing. Now, you may wonder, where am I going with all of this about this story from you know, almost 50 years ago? But this story is really important. MITS had made an incredible machine that effectively, at that moment, couldn't do anything. But it was front page news in Popular Electronics in January of 1975. And it's possible that some of you watching this, you may have even seen that, that uh, magazine article from all those years ago. So this thing, according to MITS, was an incredible machine, but effectively it was, it was mostly like a giant paperweight. But these people that made it, they were convinced that it was revolutionary. But though it was an amazing and potentially revolutionary device, they couldn't communicate with it because the Altair 8800 didn't have a language, even a very basic language. They believed that they had something important, but the engineers that had made it, they needed a way to speak to the box, to the computer, in a way that the box could understand. They needed to come up with a way that they could express what it was that they wanted this computer to do. It needed to have a language. And 2,300 miles away in Cambridge, after reading the article, these two geeks began writing a basic computer language that could speak to the box. The box, without the language, was unaware until Paul Allen and Bill Gates made a basic computer language, and they started a company called Microsoft. And they started a revolution which, less than 50 years later, has made it possible for you and I to say, hey Siri, I want a hamburger and for Siri to come back with a response. And when I said that, maybe your phone just went off. I'd actually, I turned mine off so it wouldn't do that. But now we can speak to the box. And this is phenomenally more powerful than that system was that they were using all those years ago. Now, all of that is kind of the long route to make it to this important point. Special revelation makes it possible for the creator to reveal his nature and his will to his creation. And although many rational skeptics question whether general revelation is possible or special revelation is possible, we have watched these things actually happen in the last 45 years. And now we're able to use it without even thinking about it. Every single day you are using these kind of things. I'm recording this right now and we're gonna broadcast this in a way where it can go around the world instantaneously and you can log on to it and watch it on your device or on your TV. And, and we can do this relatively cheaply and we can send this information around the world and all of us are using this every single day. And, and how are we able to do this? Because we were able to write a language and speak our nature, what we are like, and our will, what we like, what we want, to the box, to the computer and the computer can understand, it can comprehend. Now, at this point, somebody say, may say to me, okay, so pastor, are you saying that God is a master engineer and that we're a bunch of computers? Well, yes, we're a bunch of organic computers and God who engineered all of this with his phenomenal intelligence and 
his amazing power, his resources. He is the one that made all this. He makes it all possible. And by giving us consciousness and language to understand him, he then has the ability to be able to reveal himself to us. But remember, he's outside of the box. This whole thing that we live in, that we call the universe, that we call creation, he's independent of this. He's outside of this, but he made it. So he has to have a way where he can speak into this. So God has revealed himself. He has revealed his existence and his power and his intelligence through creation, through consciousness, through conscience. That's general revelation. And then we are told in Hebrews chapter one, verse one, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. He, he has revealed himself through special revelation. He spoke in languages that people could comprehend. He speaks to us revealing what? Well, he reveals what he is like, his nature, and he reveals what he likes, his will. So God through special revelation reveals to us his nature and his will. But how do we know if this is true? How do we know if this God that has apparently revealed himself is really God? What, what test do we have? Well, for one, I would suggest that we would have to consider what it is that he has revealed about himself. As we, as we look into the scriptures that purport to be the revelation of God, the inspired revealed truth about who God is, that we would consider what he has revealed about himself. And then we would have to use the minds that I believe God has given to us to judge whether or not he who has revealed himself and the way he has revealed himself, whether or not that aligns with what we can deduce or infer about him through general revelation. So what has he revealed about himself? That's the question. I hope that's maybe a question that you are even asking. And that brings us finally to Acts chapter 17. If you were with us for the broadcast last week, you know that I kind of started in Acts chapter 17. We didn't get very far in Acts chapter 17. And I told you that we were gonna come back to Acts chapter 17 today. And a, a little bit of reminder, if you weren't with us last week, this will, won't be review, but maybe if you were, a little bit of review. Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul is in the city of Athens 2000 years ago. And he is there by himself. His other associates are in other cities to the north of him in what was called Macedonia at that period of time. And he is in Athens. And while he is in Athens, he does what he always did. He was a Jewish man from, um, you know, who was schooled in Jerusalem. And so he went to the Jewish synagogue and he would speak among the Jews and the Gentile worshipers of God that were there. And then he was also a tradesman. He worked in leather. And so he'd be in the marketplace and he'd strike up conversations. And while he's there, he's invited because of the things that he's saying that were new to the people of Athens, they hadn't heard any of these things that he's talking about before. They said, we want him to come up and speak at what was called the Areopagus. And the Areopagus was a place there in Athens 2000 years ago where the smart guys, the philosophers, the intelligentsia of Athens would gather together. And so Acts chapter 17 is this moment where Paul speaks to that group of people. And we find this in Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for his associates at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. The entire city was filled with altars given to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. 
And then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, these were kind of two schools of philosophy there in Athens 2,000 years ago, going all the way back 2,500 years ago to the time of the great philosophers of Greece, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And, and we kind of have the Epicureans and the Stoics today. Those Epicureans are those that want to live it up, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The Stoics are those that, you know, let's reject all, you know, outward influence and so forth. So then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they encountered Paul, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? What's he got to say? This kind, guy's speaking all kinds of new, weird things. Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he has preached to them, because he preached to them, Jesus and the resurrection. That's key. Um, talk about that a little bit more later on, probably into next week. Paul's message was Jesus and the resurrection. This is essentially key. Verse 19, he goes on. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. And certainly when you begin to share the things that the Bible speaks about, tells us about God and reveals about Christ, they will sound strange to the Epicureans and the Stoics of our day in the marketplace or among religious communities. These things were strange to them. These things are strange to people in our time. So verse 24, you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians, I love this in verse 21, for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear something new. Sounds like the United States of America or the Western world in 2021. Well, he continues, verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by the art of men's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. I absolutely love this passage. The scriptures as a whole, they are given to reveal God. All scriptures given by inspiration of God. And it is for the purpose of revealing to us who God is, what he is like, what he likes, and what he has called us to do and to equip us to do what he's called us to do. So I, I love this passage and all of scripture is given to reveal God, what he is like, what he likes. But this passage, it, it really stands out to me because Paul 
he is speaking to a skeptical, worldly crowd. He is engaging them reasonably. It says that he reasoned with them daily. And that's what God wants us to do with the people around us, the Epicureans, the Stoics, the religious and the non-religious alike. He wants us to engage with them reasonably, but not only engage with them reasonably. Paul was engaging with these people reasonably, and he was engaging with these people boldly. And these people, Paul addresses, they were in awe of the world. And they valued something bigger, something greater than them. But they weren't really aware of what that something bitter, bigger actually was. And, and Paul says in this passage, this thing that you are in awe of, um, egneo, and, and that's where we get our English word agnostically, this thing that you worship and are in awe of without knowledge, ignorantly, agnostically, I want to tell you exactly what this is. And, and what does Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, reveal? What does he say in this passage? What does he reveal about this God? Well, I, I just went through this really quickly, just read through it for you just a moment ago, but I kind of read through this really quickly the other night. And as I did, I underlined 14 things, at least 14 things that this discloses, it reveals about God. There is an apocalypse of God here in this passage. So what are the 14 things that this passage reveals to us about God? Well, number one, first, God is a person and not an inanimate force or power. Now, we are introduced to the inanimate force or power in our world today by other people outside the Christian faith who believe other things than we do. And you see it in pop culture and in the Star Wars universe. There is the force out there. Or as some of the, the uh, you know, the great psychologists of another age, they would talk about the, you know, corporate or the unconscious of all of us kind of woven together. There's this force, there's this power, this is collective intellect out there. But this scripture tells us that God is a person and not an inanimate force or object. Paul says in this passage, this one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. He doesn't say this thing that you worship without knowing, I want to tell you about it. He says, I want to tell you about him. God is a person. The second thing we find in this passage is that this God who is a person, <clears throat> pardon me, and not just a person, but ultimately personable, this God, number two, he made everything. We see that here in this passage. God who made the world and everything in it. <clears throat> the third thing we see in this passage, pardon me, third thing that we see about God in this passage is that God is master and Lord of all. Paul says there, he is Lord of heaven and earth. The next thing we find, number four in this passage, is that God doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. So fourth thing is God doesn't need us. Fifth thing I would say, God does not need anything that we can give him, though he's worthy of all of our worship. He doesn't need us. This is important. God is independent of his creation and does not need, there's no necessity in God where he needs you or me. I know there are some people even within the Christian community who try to say that, you know, God is incomplete without us. That's not true. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. There's nothing that you and I can do or give to him where he goes, wow, I didn't have this and I'm so glad I have this. The scriptures say in this passage, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need us. 
The sixth thing that we find in this passage as we read through this carefully is that as God reveals himself, he reveals that he made us for his purpose. He gives to us or gives to all life and breath and all things. Everything that we have, he has given it to us. The seventh thing that this reveals about God is that he has a determined purpose or a determined plan. God made everything for a plan. And the eighth thing we see in this passage is that his handiwork, all the things that he created, is intended to cause us to seek for him. Look at what the text says in this passage. He has made, God has, from one blood, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined, God has a determined and pre-appointed time and boundaries for all people and their dwellings so that, this is really key, verse 27, for the intent, to the end that we should seek the Lord and hope that we might grope for him and find him. And then that leads us right into this very next revelation about God. The ninth thing that this passage reveals about God, he is not far away. So he says there in verse 27, Paul does, that all of this stuff is made in the way that it is so that we would seek for the Lord, that we would grope for him, that we might find him, though he's not far from each of us. And I think that's really good news, but that's for another time. The 10th thing that this passage reveals is that we live and are sustained by God. In him, we live and move and have our being. The 11th thing is that nothing we make rightly represents him. We try to craft all these things to represent what God is like or who he is, but nothing that we could make properly represents him. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we're told in this passage, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like silver or gold or stone or something shaped by the art of man's devising. So there is nothing that we can make that rightly represents God or resembles him. The twelfth thing that we find in this passage is that God is merciful and he calls us to repentance. Truly, these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. He's merciful and he calls for us to turn to him in repentance. The thirteenth thing that this reveals is that there is a determined end and judgment because he is appointed, verse 31 says, because he is appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. There is an appointed end to everything that God has made. There's an appointed purpose for everything that God has made, including the people that live upon the face of the earth. There's a purpose for which he made them, but there's also a determined end. And that brings us to the very last observation that we make about God as he reveals himself in this passage. All these wonderful things about God we see in this passage brings us to number 14, the resurrection of Jesus is the proof of all these seemingly incredible things. See what it says in this passage? He has appointed a day on which God will judge the world in righteousness by the man, capital M, whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of all of this by raising him from the dead. These are among the most basic things that we know about God's nature and will as they are revealed in the scripture. And I would suggest to you that they are not in conflict. These revelations of God, they're not in conflict with what we can observe and infer from general revelation of creation, conscience, and consciousness. And all of these things that are revealed about God, that God reveals about himself here in this passage, they hang upon a single miraculous proof. A proof that was 
just as improbable to the first century Athenian intelligentsia as it is improbable to those living in the 21st century. Because when Paul says, as he's speaking to the Athenians there in this passage, that God has given assurance of all of these things about who God is, the unknown God making himself known. He's given assurance of all these things by raising him from the dead. And verse 32 says, and when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked Paul, while others said, ah, we'll hear you again on this matter. The resurrection, both then, 2000 years ago, and now in the 21st century is the sticking point. But the resurrection is also either the proof point of Christianity or the breaking point of Christianity. All that I am teaching you about the nature of God and what the Bible reveals about God, it is either proved, validated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this is pointless. This is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ be not raised from the dead, we are pitiable. And all of this is for naught. So the resurrection, which is what Paul was speaking at the beginning of this, what was it that he was talking about? Well, they said, oh, I don't know. He speaks about some foreign gods because he keeps talking about this resurrection. And then at the very end of his discourse in the Areopagus to the intelligentsia of Athens, he says, Jesus was raised from the dead. And the people go, whoa, time out. That's where you lost us. We were interested in all this stuff about this God who is there, who is powerful, that created all things. But then you said, there's a man who died and rose from the dead. And they said, all right, we're out. We're done. So this is either the proof point or the breaking point of Christianity. And it invited mockery 2,000 years ago, and it invites mockery today. But all of this that I am talking about, it seems incredible or at least improbable to anyone that hears it for the first time. But though it may seem improbable or incredible, there is something within every single person that when we hear this, this story about God as he reveals himself in the scripture, there is something about this that connects with us at a deep level where we would actually say, I would love for this to be true. And here's the thing. I think that this whole thing would have been probably incredible for someone like Paul. Paul was not a stupid person. He's an intelligent person. But all this would have been incredible to a guy like Paul until he met the resurrected Jesus. And when he met Jesus, who had raised from the dead, had been crucified in Jerusalem, buried dead in a tomb, when Paul had a firsthand encounter with the resurrected Jesus, he had to step back and go, well, I guess this is all really true. Because if it is in fact true that Jesus rose miraculously from the dead, well, then everything you think you know has to be reevaluated if he rose from the dead. God has given assurance to all of this by raising Jesus from the dead, Paul says there in verse 31 of Acts chapter 17. Now, the Athenians, they gave Paul a hearing on all these things that he had to say. They brought him up to the Areopagus. They brought him to be heard by the philosophers and the smart people of his day. They gave him a hearing right up to the point that he said resurrection. And then they mocked him and they sent him away. And immediately after this, after they mocked him and sent him away, we read this. Look at Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and he went to Corinth. And when Paul came to Corinth, after he had been in Athens, what did he do? Well, you can look over in your Bible if you have your Bible there available or use your, your app or whatever you have. Go to 1 Corinthians and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 
two, because right after he left Athens, he went to Corinth. And years later, Paul wrote two letters that we have to the church at Corinth. And he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter two. And I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech. Think about that. He leaves Athens where he speaks to these people with this well-articulated point. But his whole point was bringing them to this important key, the resurrection. He says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. I determined I wasn't going to say anything more than Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead. And just before that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Think about this. This message of a crucified Messiah who was buried in a tomb and rose from the dead three days later, that is foolishness in first century world and foolishness in the 21st century world. For the message of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I'll bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those that believe. For the Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In his wisdom, God has revealed himself. First, he reveals himself in general revelation through creation, consciousness, and conscience. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows forth his handiwork. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made so that they are without excuse. And then God reveals himself through special revelation. God who is outside the box communicates in a language that those inside the box can comprehend and understand. He reveals what he is like, his nature, and what he likes, his will. But even that has a way of not going far enough. And so finally, God reveals himself in personal revelation through the incarnate Christ. God became a man to reveal his love and his grace and his character. God's incarnate power and wisdom are on display. To the worldly Greeks, it's foolishness. To the self-righteous religious Jews, it's a stumbling block. But to those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. All of these things seem improbable. They seem hard to believe. And they all zero in on one individual and one extremely important event, Jesus and the resurrection. And that's where we're going next time. But you'll have to join us next week to get the rest of the story. We'll see you next time. Father God, I pray that you would cause these things to be in our hearts and Lord, speak to us. Lord, I pray that you would help those who, who do have belief, who trust that these things are true, help them to have boldness to reason about these things with skeptics, religious skeptics, non-religious skeptics, the Epicurean, the Stoic philosophers that sit in the cubic ne cubicle next to us or on the same construction site or in the same classroom as Everybody gets ready to go back to school. All these things, Lord, I pray that you would give us the boldness and the passion to speak reasonably to the people that we interact with. And that we'd go back to these very basic things. First things first. We go back to what is the, the world 
the cosmos, the universe, what does creation tell us? And what is the fact that we, we know, that we have consciousness, what does that tell us? And what is the conscience, this moral inclination for justice and rightness and goodness and beauty and truth, what does it tell us? And then, Lord, as we begin to look at the pages of scripture, what does it reveal about who you are? And how does that align with everything that we see in us and in this world? God, I pray that you'd help my brothers and sisters, those who do know you, to to recognize that we have a reasonable faith. It's not some blind, insane trust. We have a reasonable faith in the living God. You have revealed yourself. And I pray that you would give us the ability, the power, the boldness to be able to reveal you to others. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.